Hello and welcome to another episode of Any Talk. I'm Annie Mae Forster, and today on the show we're going to be talking about integrated logistics support. So our first guests on the show today are Principal Consultants Peter Winter and Tom Dalton. Hello, Tom and Peter. Hello, Annie Mae. Hey, Annie Mae. Also, today we have General Manager Steve Colomendez. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Annie Mae. Thanks for having me back. All right. So if I start with Steve, can you briefly outline what is integrated logistics support? Sure, Annie Mae. So integrated logistics support for me as a non-ILS or integrated logistics support specialist, it's a bit of a dark art at times. It's the people and the function that are responsible for maintaining a bit of kit. So after you, you buy a capability, it's the function that is responsible for making sure it operates and it's available when required. So think of a vehicle, for example, making sure it goes through all of its strict maintenance regimes, making sure it's got the right support in terms of documentation and the users and can fulfill the benefits that the capability is providing with all the stuff that occurs in the background. So that's anything from repair, maintenance and ongoing support to make sure the capability fulfills its intended benefits. Steve, to follow on from that, ILS has got its different functions too. It's got its acquisition phase, the sustainment phase. It's got the above the line, the below the line, and they're all different. So that if you're working in above the line, the experience that you get there is completely different to the experience that you would get below the line. And the same as being in a sustainment organisation or in a project in the acquisition phase. Okay. And Peter, can you tell us what the nine elements of ILS are? Oh dear, now you put me on the hook. Engineering support, supply support, maintenance support, computer support, package storage and handling, personnel and people, facilities, disposal, training and training support. On that, we say nine or 10 elements. Some domains, I think the US Air Force, they have 12. So it can be a little bit variable. Okay. Why are there sometimes more? I suppose they subdivide things. Well, what we would class as a um, uh, as one element, but they would break it down to maybe two or three, just for granularity and more depth. And I suspect it's also because it, on air, airframes and air, aircraft, there would probably more uh, room to be able to do or to the need to do that. I guess disposal is one that is included in some and it's not included in others, and it's a sub of all, right? So it can either be an element or it can be part of all of them. I might add just quickly there, I didn't quite mention at the start that ILS, we're talking about it right now in the defence context and defence industry, but it is a skill sense of principles and practices that can be applied to certainly more than just defence. Some of the other industries would perhaps refer to this as asset management, but the philosophies and the principles remain the same. It's getting the most out of your kit and equipment that you've spent a fair bit of money on to make sure that can fulfil its intended roles. Sometimes the names and the nomenclature can change, but the outcomes are still very much the same. And we've seen it applied in defence firsthand, in defence industry, transport and rail and other sectors as well. Yeah, it's a good point you make, Steve. Within the name, it's got logistics, where logistics is usually getting something from A to B, but within integrated logistics support has nothing to do with getting things from A to B. Logistics is the whole nine elements. Yeah, what we're looking there is effective and efficient, getting something in a place at the right time, the right quantity, in the right state, as cheaply and as efficiently as possible. We don't want to just blow all our dough 
organize things so that it can be done effectively and efficiently. And going slightly off course, but ILS also encompasses health, which we don't cover, and spirituality and those sorts of things. So the, the whole compass of ILS in defense covers the whole gamut of keeping a force in the field. We're just concentrating here on equipment side of things. That's what we mean by ILS is equipment ILS, not the whole thing. We're including the personnel, hospitals, tentage, food, mortuaries, and all the rest of it. Okay, so Peter, what training and experience do you think someone need to do in order to be a good ILS expert? Well, first of all, you've got to do a, a three or four year apprenticeship, and then you have five to 10 years of actually working out in the field. And then you um, get yourself into a variety of different maintenance locations from right in the unit, right the way through to base workshops. Also, in the course of that is training. So you're going away to do your um, reliability training or life cycle costing training or other engineering topics. In my opinion, you don't become an ILS person unless you've got about 15 to 20 years under your belt of, of hands-on in various aspects of your trades in either as a hands-on maintainer or as, as a manager of a workshop. That's the thing about ILS and MA is there's a whole plethora of uh, short courses. There's introduction into ILS. There's the logistics support analysis courses from Formica RCM. There's also, there's a master's in ILS. You can do the master's, but that doesn't make you a, an analyst in being able to perform ILS. Like Peter was saying, it takes a long time to get to a point where you can be competent in being able to do more than one part of ILS. Uh, and it's really hard. There is no, you start at A and you finish at Z. Do you know what I mean? There's no pathway. There's no real curriculum that says that you can do this and know where to start. You don't have to do that trade to become a really good ILS person, in my opinion. You could be an operator and then find your way into a, a job in a project, say for landing helicopter dock or something like that. And before you know it, you become an ILS manager. But there's no actual way of just getting into the ILS domain and working your way into being an ILS manager or a sustainment manager. So you're saying that by osmosis then, Tom? You absorb it. Well, well that's true. You, you, you're bouncing off people and you're learning things as you go along and you never stop learning. And sometimes you've got to forget because those lessons are wrong. <laughs> but, and just case by case, it depends on what it is and how it is and how many of them there are. I mean, it's no use building up a whole beautiful ILS support system if you've only got two of them in existence. On the other hand, you want a bit more if you've got hundreds and thousands of them scattered all over the globe. So horses for courses. I actually have a question for both Tom and yourself, Peter. Like you've both performed ILS management roles in large multi-million dollar acquisition projects and also done so from below the line trying to deliver to acquisition projects. What does a typical day look like for an ILS major or is there no such thing as a, as a typical day? I think every day is different. Sometimes it's the same shit, different depth, but... Um... No, it depends. Things get, there also to be little emergencies crop up or, oh my God, we've forgotten this or, well, what, are you, what are you doing that for? We haven't, well, that's not inside the scope. We haven't got enough money to do that. Go back and think. You can argue your case, but this is fundamental. This is what the OCD says we had to do because ILS is one of the first things to get cut on any major acquisition project. Then you can go inside the ILS elements to cut down the various ones and those are usually it's training and then it's spares, and then it's documentation. They're the sort of the lines of things that get cut out to save money because we've underestimated or somebody else has splurged the money where they shouldn't have done. 
Totally agree, Pete. As an ILS manager working below the line or above the line, my daily tasks were putting spot fires out and always justifying the resourcing and allocation of budget and especially training. They always want to cut training first because the engineering phase goes before ILS phase and they always, under, or I won't say always, their budget doesn't quite cover what they want to do. So because ILS is slightly behind and ILS has still got a fair bit of budget left, they try and take ILS budget all the time. One of the things that comes out is um, when you've got a new capability coming is trying to get everything into place, the documentation, the users being able to train, the maintainers train, the spares, the toolings in place before anything is rolled out into the field. And that's a great resistance because everybody wants the new shiny toys as fast as possible. An example I can give you was when we first got the first Aslavs, the 15 that Mr. Beasley bought, we got them here and the GOC of the Log Command said that, uh, I don't want them. You've got no documentation, you've got no spares, you've got no tools, and you've got nobody trained. So where I was in DCPM, a war officer, vehicle mechanic war officer, dedicated to looking after these 14 vehicles while they went through their trials or their acceptance testing. So, Tom, you're mentioning the fact that training is always the first thing that gets cut when it comes to cutting costs. So how does that affect the current state of ILS? Thanks, anyway. Um, so when I was talking training, that, that was the budget for training the operators and maintainers and the capability management kind of group on the equipment that's been bought or sustained. But with regards to training the ILS capability, I guess, within Defence, there has been some courses that have been put through CASG, both the acquisition group and the sustainment group. And I think the sustainment group does the acquisition side of the courses and sustainment does acquisition does sustainment to get a, a more of a rounded knowledge on ILS. But there is no formal ILS training or career pathway that I know of. Back a long time ago, when we had material divisions we had a, a five-week ILS manager's course, which is written by a guy called Keith Gascoigne. But he used to get his people, they came to do the course with the people that wrote the actual manuals, the actual 1388 manual, a bloke called James V. Jones, who was a colonel of the U.S. Army. And the other one was Ken Blanchard, who was a, a doctor. And they used to come out and give us lectures. But all these people on this course were all either people like myself, ex-warrant officers, ex-warrant officers, or engineering officers of all the free services and in there for five weeks. And we do lots and lots of syndicate work of hypothetical uh, equipment acquisitions. And then we'd go back to our own material divisions because we knew that we were in multi-million dollar projects in those days. So that's when defense was willing to spend the money to train people on ILS. As you, Tom was saying before, we had all the incidental courses like you know, life cycle costing, ease of maintenance, reliability, how to write a user manual, etc. I know one of the requests that we seem to get is businesses that are delivering to defence. Everyone seems to be looking for ILS people. So is ILS starting to become a dying art? There seems to be less and less of these people that you described, Peter, in your, your cohort that defence used to almost grow ILS people due to the training and experiences that you would collect on your way in defence and then you'd be able to share all that knowledge and experience and what makes a good ILS person and it doesn't seem to be occurring like that anymore. So is it a dying art and what can we do to help? That's an awesome question, Steve. And I think there's a lot of people out there, they can spell ILS, but to get the experience that's required to be a probably broad experience within the domain, it's really hard these days to get that. They need to have those 
quite large acquisition projects, not just a land 400, but a one where we're doing some of the manufacturing and that kind of stuff, like Peter was saying, to get into those weeds so you can learn more about the levels of repair and all the other stuff that needs to be learned within ILS. Yeah, I mean, that's right, Tom. I mean, I remember when I was in uniform, I, I took leave without pay to work for a company up in Queanbeyan called EOS. And while I was there, I did all the reliability on this piece of equipment that they were designing, plus uh, also ease of maintenance. Another friend of mine, we wrote the uh, the training manuals and we wrote the maintenance manuals. So it was a small company at the time, but we brought our experience from defense into them because they were trying to flog this stuff into defense. And we learned an awful lot from just going down to the basics and right down to the, the start of the, the problems. You know, trying to advise the designers, you've got to change this because we can't remove this board here. You've got to change the fasteners to make them uniform fasteners so they've all got either slots or Allen key or whatever, the, just make it easy to open and close, those sort of things. And it's great having hands-on and being able to do that. But those opportunities don't come around that very often, unfortunately. But it'd be great if we could sort of mock that up somehow. It's going to take time and money. You might be able to do it on paper. It'd be better if you had a mixture of paper and a practical experience of doing it, but it's going to be expensive and it's going to take time. Indeed. Just to add to your point, Peter, I think it's all about investment. So invest in people's time and creating opportunities for experience. I think that has to be the number one point to get strong ILS folk that are well-rounded and have all of that experience. On the flip side of that is also exposure to, like you just said there, the designers. I recall my past being an engineer running design teams responsible for creating different designs. In particular, I'm thinking of designs that were integrating to Navy ships and this was one of the things I learned very early when I was learning what is ILS and why is it important was I fell into those traps very early. So part of getting an appreciation for ILS was realizing that it actually needs to start all the way with the design. And I need to get an ILS person into this design team as soon as possible to help us design something that is supportable and easily maintainable later on. Otherwise, we hand over something that cannot be maintained, cannot be supported, and fundamentally, it can't be used or it's going to cost a lot of money. And to that end, I'll, the work that you guys have done recently and in developing our own in-house training course for, I call people like myself, the non-ILS specialists that help create awareness and this one-day training course, I think that's been fantastic in helping the rest of our organization gain an appreciation for what ILS is and also having that filter through to everyone because I think the awareness part is a big factor in making sure we as a collective industry don't lose this skill set and continue to reap the benefits of it. I was just going to ask, going back to what you were talking about before, Peter, when you were saying you were working at EOS, what would the consequences have been if there hadn't been an ILS team involved in that project? I mean that the, the, the thing would be, wouldn't be supportable. I mean, their argument was, I said, oh, no, the client will send the whole thing back to us for repair. I says, no, nobody's going to take a, this frontline piece of equipment that's fitted onto a weapon if it goes bung. They want to be able to fix it inside an hour or two hours max to get it back online so they can use it to kill people. It's not going to send it all the way back from overseas back to Queanbeyan to, for you guys to repair it. So that's why we've got to have this ease of maintenance so that you can have pay that technicians or whoever the crew can get in and can diagnose the, the faults and pull out the circuit boards and replace them and get it back online. And that brings on another 
problem. Then there's being able to get the diagnostics correct so that you can diagnose the faults, whether you have built-in test equipment or whether you have some sort of sheets that you go through faults so you can identify the fault and, and reasonably accurately assume that you're going to fix it by changing over a part. But as it eventuated, this sale of this piece of equipment was blocked by the government. We couldn't sell it overseas so because it was the country we were trying to sell it to wasn't very friendly with, to us. So, But we still went ahead and did it. And, you know, today EOS is a big company up in Queanbeyan over in the States. Do you have any suggestions on how defence industry organisations can tackle this skills shortage issue? Apprenticeships, you've got to start off as soon as they leave school, get them in, get them onto basic trade skills, make their life interesting and give them some money rather than going to uni. Not everybody's got the ability to go to university and not everybody wants to go to university, but you've got to make it more attractive going to some sort of engineering not mechanical or electronic or electronic, but just engineering for the first year so they get their exposure to doing things and then give them little problems. Make it interesting. Everybody likes the puzzles. So make it these ILS tasks, the problems you can solve on paper or come up with different means of what you think could be a, a solution of whatever the perceived problems are. Totally agree, Pete. And then establish a, a proper career progression path, which includes both below the line, above the line, sustainment and acquisition phases. They get to work in the whole periphery of ILS, which would be great. And then at the end, they can choose what they want to do. Maybe they want to work in the sustainment organisation or what they refer to in the outside world as asset management. Or do they find where Pete and I, I think, find more entertaining is the acquisition phase. It's very difficult to get people to move up between, you know, above the line, below the line, unless employers both government and defence industry are willing to let their people cross the boundaries for experience and for, you know, that creates all sorts of problems on um, insurances and liabilities, etc. But it's worthwhile thinking about and putting it up. I've got to do something because something doesn't happen shortly. ILS, as we know, will totally die on the line and we'll be left with systems engineers. So how do we make ILS more appealing? You guys talked about offering apprenticeships and offering younger people opportunities and offering them a career path. How would we get them to enter that sort of career path? You've got to make it so that you can make a difference and you can save millions of dollars over the lifetime of a project. You personally can do that as a part of a team as well, but you can make a difference. You can save somebody's life. You can save equipment from being wrecked. All right, well, we'll wrap it up there. So thank you, Tom, Peter and Steve for talking today about integrated logistics support. It was a pleasure. I'm almost thinking of coming out of retirement. Thank you anyway. And that was really just um, skimming the surface. Like We could have gone on all day. Thank you anyway. We might have to get Tom and Peter back for the second part of ILS. <laughs> when I'm retired, uh, Steve, it'll cost you.